Well, I'm excited to continue in the book of John, the gospel. It's been a, a good journey so far. I've enjoyed it. Even though we're just a few verses in, and I know this, this first chapter is just so packed full, but we will make our way through. Uh, we won't just do a few verses every week all the way through John for the next five years. So we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace, but these are just packed in. Well, this week I was thinking about how um, in my adult life, about 10 of those years have been spent overseas somewhere, either um, in Ecuador when I was um, about right after college and spent a couple of years there in around 2000. 2002, 2002, somewhere in there, I think I was, and then um, spending with my family over in China for another eight years, and, and that was a good, a good time uh, of doing that. And one thing I was thinking about is reminded, reminded how just communication has changed and changed even over since 2000 to when we arrived uh, on the field in China in 2008, how much it changed. When I was in Ecuador... Um, I communicated with family and friends through email, and we were kind of, I was kind of in a city, kind of, well, a town. It wasn't really a city, maybe a village, I don't know. It was way out in the middle, kind of, of nowhere, and of course, it was just dial-up at the time, and the phone lines where I lived, they were sent by um, like a microwave dish where it would send a signal from one mountain to another to another till I got to a city, and as you can imagine, that was pretty slow internet, and if someone were to send me a picture it was the end of email for a while because it wouldn't, it wouldn't come through, literally. And thankfully, there was some smart person who figured out how to, to they wrote a program for us in Ecuador that we could grab that, uh, a look at what our email was going to be and delete them. This is before web-based email kind of things going on and the way that our email was. And I'd go and delete that email and tell them, please don't ever send me a picture again because uh, it ruins my email. But... And, and then uh, if I wanted to make a phone call, they had phones, but then they had this net to phone. I could go to a bigger city where they had better, better internet, and I could call my parents, and it was a lot less than calling for my phone, and um, we could do that. And then eventually we, got, we were able to, to instant message a little bit back and forth. And then when we were in China, it was video. Uh, Skype was up and running. So we were good on video, and we could easily um, talk with family and friends back home, and our kids, grandkids could talk to grandparents, and, and vice versa. And it was good, and it was so much better than, than just email to be able to have that video. And as we know, through pandemic time and things, video's okay and all, uh, but it's not the same as being able to fly home and come home and have, uh, be able to be face-to-face and hug family and, and embrace one another and speak to one another in the flesh face-to-face. And we experience that in so many different ways during the pandemic. There's just something that just, it's not the same as watching on a screen. I was even thinking this week of, of, um, with the death of Queen Elizabeth and how people waited in a five-mile-long line just to personally stand in flesh in front of um, that casket. And I just, it just blows my mind, um, that. But there's something about being in the flesh. And we have, too, then this truth that our God, uh, that Jesus came in flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He was with us in flesh. Our God didn't stay aloof apart from his creation, but he came and entered 
in. And we've seen that in different ways already as we've been walking through John. But then we see that even more unpacked in verses 14 through 18 today as we see this truth. And now John, the disciple, Apostle John, has been writing and he's given us this illustration of light, of the light, Christ as the light of the world, breaking forth into darkness. And that's a picture of that incarnation of God becoming flesh. And now there's kind of a little bit of a shift to Old Testament imagery of that of God dwelling amongst his people that we're going to see today. Uh, but these are amazing verses. And I'm just going to begin in John chapter 1, verse 14, and just read part of that very first verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we begin, and he begins to unpack, unpack what this means. And one of our, Kelly, my pastors from Kentucky, this is the way he said it. And if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you didn't get it here, but um, so back in Kentucky, the church that we were part of for many years there, uh, it was just a joy to be a part of. And our pastor there, he was a professor as well at the seminary, but he wrote a commentary on John. And I remember that when I started working on the, just studying for these sermons. And I was so excited to get this, this commentary from a pastor that I love and care for. So it's been a joy to have that. But this is what Dr. Cook said um, about these five verses. He said, each phrase in this paragraph is the distillation of John's 50 years of theology, of theological reflection on the incarnation. So a distillation of John's 50 years of theological reflection on the incarnation. So he's thought of these things, he's thought through these things, and and led by the Holy Spirit, come to these solid truths about who Jesus is and all that has happened. And he writes these things, and they're packed full. So in these, we're going to see seven different truths, and, and there might be eight if you break them up a little bit differently, but we're going to at least see seven truths about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh. And that first thing that we just see is in verse 14, at the beginning, and then verse 15, that Jesus, he pre-existed before, the entire, before entering the world, before creation. And I know this is a, a repetition of what we've seen before, but John repeats it several times, so we're going to repeat it too, this truth again, that we're reminded that Jesus, he preexisted before even entering into the world. He has always been. And it says the word became flesh. So before the birth of Christ, he was. And we saw that at the beginning of John. We said in the beginning was the word. Before all of creation, Jesus Existed, And then verse 15, John, the apostle, reflects on what John the Baptist said about Christ. And he said this, verse 15, John bore witness, again, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus, about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So he says, this one, Jesus, one that's coming, he, he's before me. He ranks higher than me. He's greater than I am. So another truth that we, we could add in here is that the truth that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And then he says, because he was before me. And you might think, well, that means, does he, is he just saying he's, that Jesus is older than he is? He was born before him? Well, no, we know that that's not the case. Because in the Gospel of Luke, we see the account that John the Baptist, he was born about six months before Jesus. So he was older but here John's saying that he was before me. He's saying that he, was, he existed before I was. He is 
God. He's pointing to the divinity of Jesus. And then as we continue in verse 14, we see that Jesus, he became fully man. It says, the word became flesh. So he wasn't just sort of human or sort of lived or sort of was born or sort of walked and sort of lived on the earth. But John is emphasizing that he was fully God. He took on flesh. He fully took on all the weakness even of the human body. We see of Jesus that he got tired, became hungry, he was thirsty. And we see accounts of that in the Gospels. Think of one in John 4 that we'll get to not too long away. Uh, when he goes to the well, and this is the encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well. And it says this as he's been on this journey. It says, that, so Jesus, he we- wearied, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. So we just see this account that they've been traveling, and he's wearied. He sits. He's fully man, experiencing even that tiredness of our body. So he took on flesh, and the disciples and the crowds who came to Jesus, they could physically see, physically touch, and be in the presence of Jesus. And then we think of the resurrected body of Jesus as well. And we know, and we have the account of Thomas who who touched him. He tangibly was able to touch the hands and the side of Jesus to examine those scars. He was with them. And there's an account of Jesus with the disciples that they have a breakfast, a fish uh, breakfast together over the fire. And it appears that he joined in on that. So Jesus was fully, fully man. But at the same time, Jesus, if you were to just see him from afar, you wouldn't necessarily say, hey, I bet that guy over there, I bet he's God. That wasn't how it worked. It wasn't that he walked around with a perpetual halo or light kind of beaming down on him. I looked at some ancient pictures of Jesus this week online, and they all have this halo and light beaming down. There's even one, it was really odd, that it had something in the background, and some people think it was a UFO that was drawn in. And It looked more like an amoeba, though, so I don't even know what they were going for. Weird People are weird. So, But Jesus was not like that, because we even see that in the account in Isaiah. So there's prophecy 700 years before Jesus that speaks about um, the physicalness of Jesus. And it says this, 53, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant. One moment. Same, my, my humanity here. Okay. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and uh, acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Fully man. And then he dwelt amongst us. Jesus dwelt among us. So we see this truth. And so he really lived. He really walked. He really taught. He really slept. He ate. He suffered. He was even tempted by sin, but without sin, among us. In the New English translation, it takes that word dwelt among us and says, translates, translates it this way. He took up residency among us. And that, that Greek word, it literally means to, to set up a tent or to tabernacle. Um, and that tabernacle points to that tent in the Old Testament. And even that word to dwell, that tabernacle, 
is the same Greek word in the, the Septuagint, the old translation of the Old Testament into Greek, uses that word for the tabernacle. It's the same word here. So he tabernacled amongst us. He, he set up residency, and it points then to that truth of the tabernacle was that tent that God instructed the people to set up, to build, so that he would dwell amongst their people and reveal his glory. And there is where Moses spoke with God, and they offered sacrifices to God. So he was with his people. So those Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle pointed forward to the time when, when Jesus would be God with us, amongst us, Emmanuel one of the names of Christ, God with us. He, he dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us. This is from Exodus 25, 8 through 9, that references God dwelling in his sanctuary in the tabernacle. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary, and I may, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So we see that Christ fulfills that. He came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he dwelt, he resided amongst us. And then we see that Jesus was full of the glory of God. So the next truth we see that he was full of the glory of God. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So Jesus' glory was seen here on earth. The glory of God was manifested in the Word, in Jesus, who became flesh. The glory of God was seen and, and experienced by those around him. It was tangible. It was, it was witnessable by all those to see the glory of God in the life and the action of Jesus. And even we know that he revealed his glory at, at the transfiguration to, to uh, P, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John and, and shined out his glory and they saw it. And then John also speaks about it, the apostle John in his letters to the churches in 1 John, this is what he says as he begins that letter. And you can see how it reflects this beginning of the Gospel of John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then in Peter, the Apostle Peter, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 17, we see this truth of the glory of God seen in Christ. For we do not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, majestic, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So the glory that was seen in Christ, it was tangible, it was witnessable. It was there amongst them. And then also, as Jesus speaks about um, glory, one of the ways that he displayed his glory most clearly is when he went to the cross to die for our sins. The glory of God and of Christ was seen in the cross. And I think there's such a mystery there that the glory of God was found in the suffering and the humility and the, the death of Jesus. Well, this is how Jesus speaks of it later in John, chapter 12, verse 23 through 24. It says, Jesus answered them. It says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the 
earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's speaking of his death on the cross. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then John 17, 1, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He says this in, in John 7, 1. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So this is an amazing mystery that in the cross that the glory of God is most clearly seen. We see the mercy and the justice of our God, the grace and also his wrath um, on the cross as Jesus died for our sins, but enabled to pour out grace upon us. And we'll talk about grace in a little bit more in a bit. All right, a fifth truth we can see that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He clearly says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So here we have that Jesus is that only, that unique, that begotten Son of God from the Father. And John continues, he's building this even clearer picture as we grow to understand that idea of the Trinity, of three persons, yet one God. Um, Dr. Cook, he wrote this in regard to that word, that begotten, our only one, that unique God, our unique son. It says, the word often translated begotten, as we see in the King James, does not mean that the word did not exist before he was born. That's made clear in all these other ways that we've seen that he preexisted. Rather, the idea here is that Jesus, the word, is the father's son in a way that no one else could ever be. He's the unique and only son of God. And then as we continue, we see that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now there's a lot here in the grace and truth of Christ. As it continues in verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. And then as we're going to see later in 16 and 17, but we see that Jesus is full of both the grace, both full of both grace and truth. They're both needed. Now, one thing that you might not know, and I tend to forget even when I do new members classes, is to talk about um, the little star that we have with Calvary. What's that about? Well, part of that star is the truth that the light of Jesus Christ, that he shines. And he is the one who shines out and represents the light of Christ. But then also, in the middle of that, cro- or that star, that middle star is kind of pointy and kind of edgy. Um, and that represents truth. And then the outside is a little bit softer and warmer, and we have grace. So we have grace and truth, but they go together. We need grace and truth, because truth without grace, really, it's unbearable. It's life-crushing. And there might be those who are really, really big on truth and making sure all of their truth and doctrines are right, but they don't have grace. And really, those, those folks are... Um, Jerks, really. Uh, they are. I know. I don't know any way to say it. He's like, you might be right, but man, you're a jerk. So you don't draw me in. But then grace, same thing. Grace without truth, um, that's a little bit like, like jello. It's kind of like a bottomless ball pit that you're in. I remember as a kid that uh, we had like something like Chuck E. Cheese, and my friends were talking about this ballroom, and I had all these pictures in my head, and we went, and there was just like this this pit with balls, and I was not as excited. I had this really big picture. But anyway, I don't know. I just thought of this picture of there's grace without truth just falling. You know, you just, it might be soft around you, but you just keep sinking down. Or it's a little bit like um, niceness without any roots and stability. It's a body without bones, um, grace without truth. 
Um, it's maybe mere unconditional affirmation. One, one uh, pastor said it this way. Kevin DeYoung said, unconditional affirmation is not the same thing as love. Unconditional, aff- unconditional affirmation, it's not the same as love. You need truth in there to lovingly care and instruct and disciple. So we need grace and truth. But often, I think, often we probably lean one way or the other, though, toward grace or truth. Even as we look at Jesus, and, and maybe as grace people, we see the picture of Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery. And where we think of that, how he doesn't condemn her, but he forgives her. But he does call her to sin no more, and he sends her out. Or we think of the picture of Jesus receiving the children and laying hands on them and blessing them and, and welcoming them. Or Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, and we have this picture. And then truth people, we love the picture of Jesus cleansing the temple and making the whip and chasing out the tax collector, or the tax the the money changers and turning and flipping over tables and him going to the Pharisees and saying, woe to you. Um, But those both are true of Christ, right? He's full of grace and truth. Both are needed, grace and truth. And they're perfectly found in Christ and perfectly melded together too on the cross of Jesus Christ where God's justice and hatred for sin and his standard to follow after his Law and his ways and his design are demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ for us, but then also that grace of Christ flowing out, the righteous one dying for us, uh, the unrighteous. And we see him freely uh, allowing us through Christ to come to a holy God by his grace and his mercy. So we have grace and truth mingled together in the life and the death and even in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's full of grace, full of the kindness and favor of our God. Grace is seen, again, in the sacrificial life of Christ who died for us, that we might be forgiven. One commentator said this about grace. I found it helpful. Grace is not merely an attribute of God. It is known when someone enjoys his goodness. It is the recipient who knows grace, not the theologian who has studied it. So it's more than just studying it. It's knowing grace, the recipient who knows grace, not just the theologian who outwardly studies it. And then verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So this grace continues as we believe in Christ. We receive grace upon grace, an overflowing grace that we see here, a picture of just the fullness that we have of grace that is in Christ Jesus when we trust and we rest in him. We looked at that some in Ephesians, given chapter 2, where it speaks about how in Christ, when we are raised with him in the coming ages, we'll experience the immeasurable riches of the graces of Christ Jesus. Grace upon grace. But then again, he's full of this unchanging truth, too. All his words, all the words of Christ are truth. All that he taught was truth. He posed falsehood and lies and deception, really, that the world pours out. Really, a distortion of reality, a distortion of truth. But our God is one who's full of truth. And even Christ said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's emphasis on truth. And we see the truth even in the law. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. 
So we see that the law came. Moses brought the law, but through the law, um, salvation didn't come. Uh, The grace wasn't fully experienced in the law. No one is saved by obeying the law. No one is able to fully obey the law. Only Christ was. So the law instead showed us what sin was and our need for Jesus. So Romans 3.20, Paul says it this way, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, so law is there to, to show us that, that we need forgiveness, that we need grace, that we need sacrifice, that we need one to atone for us. And the law, though, points us uh, then to Jesus. In Galatians 3.20, this is a New English, or the um, NIV, it translates it. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So it points us ahead. And yet, the law still, it wasn't without any grace. Um, You just read Psalm 119 and the reality that um, there is so much goodness in God's word that he didn't leave a people alone, but in his goodness, in his grace, he said, this is my design, this is my way, this is my will, this is where human flourishing is found, and he reveals himself even in the law, uh, but the grace found in Christ is even greater. And this phrase even, grace upon grace, it can be translated grace instead of grace, or grace replacing grace. And some um, scholars think that that's what it's pointing to in the idea that um, we had the, the grace in the law, but then the grace of Christ, even greater, replaced it in a more full, true way. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And we see that um, reality and that truth. Grace and truth fulfilled find their fulfillment in the person and the work of Christ. And then finally, a last truth in verse 18. We see that Jesus is being fully God, made God, really you can say fully known, made him known in a more full way. There's still depths to to find of him. But this is our seventh truth in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we're reminded that Jesus is fully God. He is the unseen God made visible, the only God. Maybe your translation, some translations say the only Son, because there's some variance on some manuscripts and some debate back and forth. But the truth is the saying that Christ is, is fully God, and He's made God fully known to us. He has made Him known. When the disciples, when they looked upon the face of Jesus, they would see, they saw the true God, and they saw his glory. Again, um, I'm going to repeat a little bit of a verse we've read, but John 14, 6 through 9, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. I'm sorry, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So we see this truth that if we want to know God, if we want to know his heart, we want to know his character, know his ways, know his will, we look to Jesus. We can look to Jesus. We can look too to all of God's word that points again, points ahead to Christ Jesus and gives us 
revelation of who Christ is and His will and His way and who God the Father is. And we see that the Word here became flesh and made God known to us. So as we walk through and we continue just to unpack all of these things that we have found in these first 18 verses, and we think of these first 18 verses, again, it's a prologue where it's taking these huge themes, these things that John's going to unpack for us, and he reminds us these are true of Jesus Christ, and his goal is that when you get to the end, that you, that we believe. And maybe you come this morning, you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, and might it stir up in you as we study through this belief, or maybe you as a believer wrestle through your belief, and may as we walk through this, there be a solidifying of your faith and your belief in Christ and a stirring up that you begin even more and more together even as we do this together, that we believe what we believe. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your good word today. We need to be stirred up and be reminded of the truth of Jesus Christ. We need to be stirred up and reminded of the grace and the truth that are found in him that, that, that just are not found anywhere else in this world. We thank you for, for those things. We thank you for the cross where, where your grace and your truth were mingled and melded together perfectly. And that our sins were, were taken care of if Christ died on the cross and you call us to turn from our sins and trust in you that we have.